Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Kevin. Won't you please pray with me for just a moment? Now, Lord, we open our hearts and minds for the truth and power and wisdom of your word that your spirit might apply it to our circumstances and might encourage and empower us to go out and live as your people. Now and always, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Inauguration parades, they've been a part of American political history for many, many years. Every four years when a president is elected or perhaps re-elected, we take one day out in the middle of January to swear the president in, hear the president give a speech, and then we have a, a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the inauguration parade, and it's been going on for a long time. Historians debate whether it first started with Thomas Jefferson or James Madison, but it's been around a long time. Those early parades were basically just military escorts, escorting the president to his place of work. But over the years, as more presidents uh, were inaugurated, they added to the parade and made it more of a festive occasion. William Henry Harrison in 1841 was the first president to include floats. In the inauguration parade. Abraham Lincoln in 1865, his second inaugural, was the first president to include African Americans in his parade. And 52 years later, in 1917, Woodrow Wilson's inaugural parade was the first parade to include women. In 1921, Warren G. Harding was the first president to ride in an automobile in his inauguration parade. But by all accounts, the biggest and most extravagant inaugural parade of all time belongs to Dwight Eisenhower in 1953. His parade lasted four and a half hours. It included 73 bands, 59 floats, three elephants, an Alaskan sled dog team, and a large turtle that had been trained to wave the American flag. I am not making that up. You know, the idea of inaugural parades is not unique to America, actually. It goes way back, back to the days of the ancient Greco-Roman world, back in those days when a mighty conquering king like Alexander the Great or a powerful emperor like Julius Caesar would take more territory. They would march into the capital city of that territory, and it would be an inaugural parade. The, the, The... 
soldiers who were victorious on the battlefield would, would come and the emperor, the king, would, would be carried in. Sometimes he would be riding a horse or a donkey. And sometimes there would be dancers and people playing timbrels and singing. It was a way of demonstrating that there was now a new leader in the territory and the citizens were supposed to line the streets and celebrate whether they liked it or not as a way of showing their devotion to the new king and their willingness to cooperate with the new administration. Now, today is Palm Sunday. And uh, it's the day when we remember how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a famous passage of scripture that we read today and if you've been around the church for a while you're familiar with it jesus riding into jerusalem as people spread palm branches on the ground wave palm branches in the air and they shout out hosanna which is a hebrew word that means god saved us and they shouted blessed be the son of david son of david was a a messianic term a title really for the king who would come who was promised to come a king who would lead the people into a new era. Harkens back to the days of the great King David. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God's chosen one. You know, uh, what we sometimes miss when we read this story is what we're reading or what's being described is actually an inauguration parade, isn't it? It's an inauguration parade in the in the same vein as the ancient Greco-Roman world. And the message Jesus is communicating on that day as He begins His inauguration parade is a message that still impacts your life and in my life today. A little bit of background so we can better understand what's happening here in the text. It is a Sunday morning, the first day of the Hebrew week, but it's also the first day of the Passover celebration, an annual celebration where the Jewish people remember their heritage and how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and how the angel of death passed over their house. That's where Passover comes from. And uh, this was a pilgrimage festival, which meant that all faithful Jews needed to travel to the capital city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And there would be, towards the end of the week, the slaughtering of sacrificial lambs to remember the lamb that was slain on that first Passover night. And so Jerusalem, which would typically have a a population of about 120,000, would, during this week of Passover, have a population of 1.5 million. It was packed. In addition to the citizens who were normal citizens there and lived there year-round, and in addition to all of the faithful pilgrims who had come in to celebrate the Passover, there were also additional Roman soldiers. Because at this time, the nation of Israel was not a free and independent nation. They were actually under the control, the authority of the Roman Empire. And the Jews didn't like that. And the Romans knew that the Jews didn't like that. And they also knew that whenever you had large gatherings of people in Jerusalem, that was a a dangerous time. Lots of things could happen. Crowds could get stirred up. Revolts could happen. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in charge of that region, wanted to make sure that there was nothing that was going to happen to disturb the peace. So extra soldiers were brought in for that particular week, and they would be parading through the streets as well and keeping an eye on things. And so, as Jesus begins to ride into Jerusalem on this donkey, 
the Jewish people realize what he's doing. They knew the scriptures. They knew that Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, was declaring himself to be king. He's fulfilling the words of the ancient prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. And they'd known that Jesus was a, was a, a man who performed miracles and had great teachings, and they had wondered, many of them, is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? Is he going to be the king? And when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day, in that inaugural parade, they knew he was declaring himself to be king, so they lined the streets and began to celebrate. The Roman soldiers saw all this. They probably saw Jesus more as a curiosity. Uh, they knew they needed to keep an eye on him, but he didn't have soldiers with him. He didn't have weapons on him. And so they just observed to make sure nothing would happen that would be too out of the ordinary. But the religious leaders, the chief priests... The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones who handled the, the religious services in the temple, they knew all about Jesus too, and they were furious that he would take this opportunity on the first day of Passover to somehow come into Jerusalem and declare himself to be king. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the king. They believed he was a false teacher, a false prophet, a troublemaker. And they were worried that if Jesus stirred up the crowd, the Romans would come down hard and cancel the rest of the Passover festival and maybe cancel Passover for good. And so the religious leaders got together and began to plot together as to how they might hand Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. And that's why just a few days after this inaugural parade, the plan works. Jesus is arrested. He's tried. He's nailed to a cross. And he's placed in a tomb. If his kingdom was being inaugurated on that Palm Sunday, then it just didn't last very long. Just a couple of days. And then it was over. Or was it? Or is it? See, friends, the, the fact that you and I are here today, his tangible witness to the truth that the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate on that Palm Sunday, that kingdom is still going on. It hasn't ended at all. No king has had greater impact on the trajectory of human history and the trajectory of individual lives than Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King, who declared His kingdom was not of this earth, but his kingdom was real nonetheless. See, Jesus came not to bring about a political revolution, but a spiritual revolution. And when he died and was placed in the tomb, he didn't stay in that tomb. He rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. They didn't understand it at first, but as Jesus explained it to them, they began to realize this was a new kind of kingdom and Jesus was a new kind of king. And it all started on Palm Sunday, that day of the inaugural parade, when the king declared his kingdom to be in force. And that kingdom is not finished yet. You and I are part of that kingdom now. And Jesus promised us there's going to be a second inaugural parade someday. And this second inaugural parade is going to be spectacular. The Bible describes it this way. The heavens will be split open. Jesus, the Savior, will descend. Surrounded by angel armies. The blasting of trumpets. All who see will be in awe of His majesty and His power. And then that invisible kingdom that we're a part of now will become very visible. You know, 
The second coming of Jesus is a major theme in the Bible. It's a major theme of Jesus' teachings. He told stories about it. He told his disciples to be prepared for it. More than 318 Bible verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Jesus. We're told not to try to predict when it's going to be or guess, but we're told to be watching and waiting and anticipating with joy and to live out our lives recognizing that we're part of that kingdom. Until he returns, Jesus has established his church, you and me, to be the physical representation of his eternal spiritual kingdom. Paul puts it this way in Corinthians, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And guess what? That makes the church his embassy. We are living out our lives with dual citizenship. You know, we're, we're, we're in this world, but we're, we're really citizens of heaven. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that our, our true citizenship isn't in this world. It's in heaven. And, you know, sometimes when you talk about the end of the world, people kind of get uncomfortable with that. You talk about the second coming of Jesus. They don't always like that kind of talk. And people don't like it because, well, for some, it just seems kind of weird. And maybe you've heard, you know, preachers or teachers try to predict when it's going to come. And they point to this event and that event and say, this lines up with this passage of Scripture. And any day now, Jesus is going to return. And then it doesn't happen and you wonder... And then other times, uh, we don't hear a lot about the second coming because we in the church today try so hard to be relevant to people's everyday lives. And, well, the second coming of Jesus, we don't know when it's going to be, and it's sometime in the future, so we don't talk about it a lot. But, friends, it's such an important truth that we need to understand. And, and it's not something we should fear. The early church did not fear the second coming of Jesus. They anticipated it. They rejoiced in it. It gave them encouragement and strength for their lives. See, we're living in the in-between times. He came once and had his first inaugural parade. He will come again and have his second inaugural parade. And until that time, we live out our lives as part of his eternal kingdom. In the Library of Congress, uh, above the, the reading room, there is a plaque, quotation of Tennyson. says this, One far-off divine event toward which all of creation moves. It's a quote pointing us to the second coming of Jesus and a reminder to us that history is going somewhere and we are part of a bigger story. And when He comes, we will rejoice and be glad. It will be the end of suffering, the end of pain, the end of evil, the end of death. And until that day, we remind ourselves of this truth And we anticipate it. We look back on the first inaugural parade with gratitude. We look towards the second one with hope. And we do our best to live out our lives as citizens of that eternal kingdom. So how do we do that? How how do we live in this life as ambassadors for Christ, anticipating the kingdom yet to come? How do we live in these in-between times? In the few minutes we have left, let me offer you two suggestions. There's lots of things we could say, but... These two are just critical for us. First of all, as we wait, we work. We work. We are called to do the work of the kingdom, to build the kingdom of God. We don't just sit back and wait, oh, Jesus, come and fix this mess. We are called to be, as ambassadors for Christ, part of God's solution to God's representatives in this world. To confront pain and sorrow and injustice and evil. 
and in Jesus' name to do something about it as we're able. We're called to do the work of the kingdom. Down through history, the church has been God's ambassadors, Jesus' ambassadors, and we've comforted the sick, and we've encouraged the discouraged, and we've given hope to the hopeless, food to the hungry, water to the thirsty. We've called people out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is the work we're called to do as the people of God, as His ambassadors. Husbands, when you love your wife, truly love her, respect her, encourage her, support her, you're doing the work of the kingdom. Wives, when you love your husbands, and when you encourage them and support them, and honor them, and bless them, and build them up, you're doing the work of the kingdom. Parents, when you invest in the lives of your children and you say prayers with them at night and you take them to Sunday school and you model for them what a healthy life looks like and you encourage them in their studies and you call the best out of them and you forgive them when they mess up, you're doing kingdom work. When you go to your job, if you've got a job, and you do your very best without complaint and you seek to serve God and serve your customers and your your, your clients with excellence. You're doing the work of the kingdom. You're being an ambassador for Christ. Kids, when you go to school and you pay attention in class and you do your homework without complaint and you seek to learn so you can prepare yourself for life, you're doing the work of the kingdom. See, it's not all just coming to church. It's about living as representatives of the kingdom, as, as ambassadors in our everyday ordinary life and looking for ways to demonstrate that we're part of this eternal kingdom that will not end. We, uh, we're going to have confirmands joining our church this Sunday at the next service. And they will stand up here and they will take the vows of membership. And here's what they know because we've taught them. Here's what they know. When they take the vows of membership today, they will not be joining a religious country club. They'll be signing up as ambassadors for a kingdom that will not end. They'll be joining a kingdom construction company that's got work for them to do. You know, we've been going through this Go Fish series through the past several weeks, talking about how important it is for us to learn ways to share our faith that don't seem weird to us. And we've been talking about how to learn to share your story and invite others to experience the love of God. And, and you know, when you do that, when you take a risk and invite somebody to church or talk about your faith, when you do that, you're doing the work of the kingdom. So whether we engage in compassionate acts or whether we fulfill our responsibilities with excellence and a good attitude or whether we share with our mouth the love of God with others and encourage them, whatever that is, that's, that's all part of the work we're called to do. He's coming back someday. But until that day, we wait. And we work while we wait. But we don't just work, we also worship. That's the other thing I want to remind you about. We, we worship. In fact, it's the worship that empowers our work. When we gather together for these kinds of weekly worship services, we're celebrating our King and we're acknowledging that we're part of His kingdom. We stay connected to Him through worship. So we don't lose our focus. You know, life has a way of distracting us and knocking us off center and causing us to lose our focus. 
But when we worship, we're reminded once again of what's really important and why. Worship is an encounter with the living God. When we sing, that's that's a spiritual act. Singing, the Bible says, to sing unto the Lord. To, to make melody with our voice and with our heart. I'll tell you, when I, when I sing the songs in worship, I'm engaging in a spiritual act. I'm connecting with the Lord. And sometimes, sometimes I don't feel like singing. And sometimes I think, man, I, I don't want people around me to hear me singing. But then I remember, it's not about me. It's about giving honor to my King. Just as, the, just as those, those Jews in Jerusalem on the day Jesus rode in, shouted out, Hosanna to the Son of David. You and I are called to shout out our Hosannas in song as we gather together to worship. Some of you never experience the power of worship because you won't take the step to be courageous enough to sing out loud in worship. You don't have to sing loud, but you need to sing. You've been given an instrument, your voice. Use it. It's a spiritual act. You get more out of worship when you do that. And then when we join our hearts in prayer and our minds in prayer, we're we're joining together as the body of Christ, knowing that Jesus hears and answers prayer according to His wisdom and timing, but, but we don't fully understand the mystery. Somehow our prayers help that. When we put money into the offering plate, we're acknowledging that everything we have belongs to God and He's entrusted us to us. But, but by giving back to God all that He's given to us, we're demonstrating obedience and gratitude and trust in Him and commitment to the work He's called us to do. And then when the sermon comes along, we try our best not to fall asleep. We, we begrudgingly laugh at the pastor's corny jokes, hopefully. But most of all, we... We meditate upon the Word and we consider what it means for our lives and we ask the Holy Spirit to say something to us that will impact us so that we can go out and live as His people. And when we, when we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, we are, we are renewing our promises to the King and we are remembering His promises to us. Oh friends, worship is not some mindless religious ritual. Worship is a close encounter of the best kind. Can I get an amen on that? But see, you gotta give worship. We come to give worship. It's, it's a form of service. That's why we call it a worship service. People sometimes say, gee, I hope I get something out of the worship service today. Well, yeah, we want you to get something, absolutely. When you give to God, you get more than you ever gave. You can't outgive God, right? But here's the deal. We don't come to worship to get. We come to give. To honor our King. And when we do that, that's when we get. He, he, he responds to that. See, the real question for you and me when we leave here today, here's the real question when we leave here today. It's not, was I pleased with the worship service? Was the music decent? Was the sermon engaging? Was I pleased with the worship service? That's not the question. Here's the question. Was God pleased with my worship? Was I pleasing to Him? Because see, this, this is how worship is. You're not an audience. I'm not a performer. We are worshipers. God is the audience. Amen? I'm telling you, friends, when we have an understanding of who we are in Christ, when we think back to what He's done and what He's going to do, it changes the way we worship. 
You know, it's been many, many years now since Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey on that first Palm Sunday. And yet still today, all around the world, on Palm Sunday, Christians gather and they wave their palm branches and they celebrate that the King has come. And they remember and encourage one another with the truth that the King will come again. He's had his first inaugural parade, but a second inaugural parade is on the horizon. One far off distant event toward which all of creation moves. Until that day, we work and we worship because we are ambassadors and citizens of an eternal kingdom. And when he comes, if we're still alive and he returns, or if we die before he returns and we go to him, either way, a day is coming when we stand before his eternal throne and he smiles at us and he says, well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank